Sometimes, the best stories in golf aren't found on tour. You'll find them at the back of the range. And here's your host, Ben Adelberg. And once again, welcome to the back of the range. I am your host, Ben Adelberg. This is U.S. Open Week, and this is episode 160. Two great episodes for you this week with lots of content delivered directly from the virtual media center at the U.S. Open. So before the championship starts on Thursday, enjoy this episode featuring the man calling the action for NBC, Dan Hicks. Dan was first in the tower along with Johnny Miller for the very first time in the year 2000 when Tiger won by 15 at Pebble Beach. 20 years later, and after a couple years off when the broadcasting rights went to Fox, Dan is back at Wingfoot with Paul Azinger and the rest of the NBC team to cover the U.S. Open. Wingfoot just happens to be his home course, so a bit of a homecoming for Dan this week. We spoke about the PGA Tour, the Open Championship, Phil Mickelson, of course. We also recapped the action at the U.S. Amateur at Bandon Dunes. That's where I met Dan for the first time. Dan was responsible for me getting my little six minutes of fame when they posted the video of Ali Osborne eating the brownie Sunday. I was the one that took that footage, so it was nice of Dan to give me a little bit of a shout-out on the coverage. Um, he also shared some fantastic stories about legends like Dick Enberg and Roger Maltby. Just a fantastic episode. Could not think of a better way to start the week here at the back of the range during U.S. Open Week. Make sure you're following on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. A lot of the posts, a lot of the interviews and comments that I'm going to get right from Wingfoot will appear there. So make sure you're following there. And remember, every single episode is available at thebackoftherange.com. So let's kick things off. Let's get started. Dan, welcome to the Back of the Range. How are you? Always good to be on the Back of the Range, and um, it, I'm doing great. I'm uh, obviously incredibly excited about what's happening with the U.S. Open. Uh, home game for me, so it, it doesn't get any better than that. I uh, I can only imagine someone that uh, that was in that chair since 2000 and then had the the brief interruption when uh, the, the rights went over to Fox for a couple of years. And now that you're back, I, uh, that has to be a, a very nice, uh, a very nice present, so to speak, that you, uh, that you received that you got to come back and be on the, the call for the, for the national championship. You cannot make it up. Um, I still <laughs> am pinching myself that it's really happening because uh, I don't think that anybody can recall anything in sports broadcast television rights happening like this happened. And it, it took this dreaded virus of COVID-19 to kind of get the ball rolling, but that's what happened. And talk started happening. And before you knew it, not only did we, because the initial conversation Ben was, was going to do a one-off, you know, for Fox at, sure. at the U S open at Wingfoot because the time frame, the time frame had been changed. And a lot of people already know the story, but the talks escalated and uh, not only ended up, you know, being able to do the Wingfoot U S open uh, in the middle of September here, but also, the remaining six years on the contract. It's uh, absolutely uh, off the charts incredible. Obviously, lots of things to talk about about the U.S. Open that happens uh, this week. We're going to, this episode's being released during U.S. Open week at Wingfoot. But before we get to that, let's, I want to backtrack just a little bit about maybe your career and then also just actually where we met for the first time, which was just a few weeks ago out at Bandon Dunes um, at the U.S. Amateur. So 
one of the most, I mean, let's just jump right into it. One of, the, one of the most dramatic and probably noteworthy occurrences of that championship was the rules infraction during the uh, Segundo Olivo Pinto and Strafacci match. And, you know, I spent a lot of time with Segundo and his teammate, uh, Julian Perico. They both played Arkansas. You know, I spent basically, I felt like 10 or 12 days out there, but I was to the left of 18 on the, uh, just left of the green when all of a sudden we see this commotion in that front right bunker. And I obviously, I obviously don't know how it played out on TV. Viewers and yourself had these, had the benefit of these camera angles. But one of the things that's interesting is it looks, it sounds like it was so seamless on how the information was distributed to the viewer. And not just with this occurrence, but can you perhaps walk listeners through how information gets relayed to you, who's in your ear telling you what's happening, how to describe it. I think it's just interesting how that can be disseminated effectively to a listener when I'm sure you have numerous people just in your ear. Yeah, that was um, that was one of those that we certainly hadn't seen. Now, we've been through other rules situations and other scenarios on a golf course where we get information, and I'll kind of describe how this one happened specifically, but I'd never really seen anything like this, the way it happened, a caddy getting in there and doing what um, his caddy did. But it was all kind of uh, prefaced by Bones. Uh, Jim Bones McKay, who was our walker on the ground at the time, made the comment even before we started uh, hearing Tyler Strafacci's dad come over and started picking up that live audio, which was amazing stuff that really kind of told the story and the tenseness of what was happening down there. But Bones alluded to the fact that, hey, you know, this bunker over here, is a really testy bunker. A lot of the sand has been blown out of it. it. It doesn't have. It doesn't seem to have a lot of sand in it. So this is going to be a tricky kind of shot. He said something to that effect. He alluded to the bunker that uh, that Segundo Pinto was in. So we started kind of the radar was up at that time, but right. just for nothing like we thought was going to happen. So before you know it, a discussion starts taking place, and we know that there's some sort of rules question here or something being questioned and then we lay out and we start hearing Tyler Strafacci's dad talk about I saw him in there he was in there he was you know had his hands on the sand he was touching the sand and and then he said the, the, the most damning of evidence that he said was yeah he talked about it afterwards that's that's what's so unfortunate about it. he said something something to paraphrase him like that so we knew that Strafacci, his dad in this case, um, you know, was the guy, the instigator to call over a rules official. And then in turn, the, the rules official starts asking, you know, Segundo Pinto and his caddy about it. We had that audio on. And so in the meantime, in my ear, I'm being told that, yes, there is a question about the caddy going in and testing the sand. Whereupon Tommy Roy, our producer in the truck, sure. starts getting the replay out and looking at it, and it's a little bit not quite a hundred percent in the initial in the initial replay that we saw that his hand was 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 grass was you know spreading out the sand and touching the sand. Then we had this you know so the, the truck is is searching frantically for some other angle that can really show everybody exactly what happened, and we had this upper this upper view of our of our, uh, our our plane up above and you could see that was the that was the video that without beyond a shadow of a doubt showed him you know doing it and that's that's when I came in they were still discussing it 
I came in, I felt the need because of just what everybody, the viewer and everybody and that I, I had just seen, that there's no, it's absolutely clear, no doubt that his caddy tested the sand. And it was just, it was so apparent. So then we laid out, we let the official come in, and then eventually they decided to give him the, you know, the hold, and it was done. Right. And that was that. And it was just the most bizarre scene. And Tyler Strafacci was just so... You know, he was blown away by the situation and, and as much as he, he just felt bad for this guy who apparently, by all accounts, is a great guy. And I think the most unfortunate thing, Ben, was that the caddy didn't didn't tell the truth. I yeah. think it was, um, you know, that's what really kind of amplified the situation. And, and then, you know, and then the rest is history. So, Well, it's really interesting. And, and, you know, when you go to a golf event, you're normally behind the ropes uh you're you're outside the ropes i should say and there's tons of commotion and spectators and cameras and this but it's such a odd experience when there's no spectators and even me being out there for the entire week you forget that what you're standing around and watching which is maybe 15 20 people in the area this is being broadcast all over the world and not to defend the caddy whatsoever but it is odd how you can be out there and you could easily forget about the cameras. Yeah. <laughs> it's, no I, mean, I it. mean, you're, you're there looking at screens and that's your day to day, but I was out there. In fact, after that happened, I kind of had a moment before the semifinals and before the finals kind of saying to myself, don't forget where the cameras are. You know, you don't want to be in someone's line of their shot. You don't want to be in a player's line. You want to make sure you're it's it was very interesting after that happened. It was a reminder of like, hey, you're you're right there in the middle of this. Anything can happen. A ball can come flying around. You just you have to be you have to be careful. I think the atmosphere there is so casual with no spectators. And the U.S. Amateur is always an event that doesn't have a ton of them. But right. certainly at this case, at this stage of this championship, there would have been you know more people than the 20, 15, 20 you described. But I do think that maybe that had something to do with it. He just, he just, it was so casual that he just walked in there and wasn't thinking. Yeah. It maybe wasn't as focused in as he might have been had there been a little bit more activity around him. I don't know. That's just a guess. But, you know, the U.S. Amateur has always been one of my favorites to do because of the intimacy of it, the no ropes, um, our ability as journalists. And you got a great feeling of the same thing out there, Ben. It's just so accessible. All these guys are just, you know, raw, innocent, you know, golfers, young golfers. And by the time you get to the weekend, these guys are playing for a spot in the U.S. Open and the Masters. And I, I just think it's such a, a pure event in that respect. It's match play at that point. And so it's always been one of my favorites. So when we got this U.S. Open package back, USGA package back, I should say, um, that was one of the things I looked forward to most was was doing these U.S. amateurs again. Yeah, you you mentioned the the raw and um, you know innocent aspect of these guys. You know, I have lots of great memories from that week, but one that really sticks out for me actually is um, the the guy that Strafacci beat in the um, in this oh gosh quarters, I believe. No, it was uh, semis. Who Strafacci beat in the semis? Amon Gupta from Oklahoma State. I mean, as you well know, they play this really tight match, and and Gupta fights his way back. He's they're tied on the 18th hole, and then he leaves two in the fairway bunker. And I see him on the green; he's visibly upset. He's pretty close to breaking down. And and I've told him this since then. I was like, you know, I had a camera on me, and gosh, I didn't feel like pulling it up and taking a shot because you were just wrecked. And I just it was such a vulnerable moment. You know, this kid has his entire professional career and college career in front of him. Can you think of a time that you've been in a similar situation with with maybe a professional where 
Like, you know, you need to get a comment, you know, you're, you need to get a statement or something, or maybe an interview. But at the time you're thinking, gosh, I don't want to be here for this because this is just a really painful moment. Yeah. Several times. And in a lot of times, um, it, it, you know, I'm up at the tower, I'm kind of out of there, you know, away from the action, but numerous times, Ben, where, you know, our people on the ground, whether it's Roger Maltby or Jimmy Roberts or whoever it is on the ground that has access to Steve Sands, whoever has access to these guys, you know, it's, 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 it can be pretty dicey. The first one that comes is way back comes to mind was the Mark Calcavecchia meltdown at the Ryder cup. Oh, I wasn't yeah. even in, at, I wasn't even at NBC at the time, but Roger Malpe was fresh off. Uh, it was just fresh into his NBC career. And he's at this Ryder cup, all the tenseness that was happening there. And then Calcavecchia does what he does. And then the producer in the truck at the time said, tells Roger, uh, you need to go out and interview Calcavecchia. And, Roger's like, I don't think that really is going to happen. First of all, I feel pretty uncomfortable with it. And then the producer was adamant and said, you really need to go out and talk to him. So Roger goes out there and basically describes back to the truck that Kalkovecki is having a mini breakdown, sobbing on the beach, yeah. and that he just doesn't feel right about it. So that's the right thing to do. You, like similar to the Amon Gupta moment that you were describing, that's a little bit too sensitive of a moment. The other one that comes to mind is, is the 2006 U S open with Phil Mickelson, yeah. who let that one get away in such raw, uncomfortable fashion. So we are getting close to coming out, going off the air and I'll never forget it. I had kept saying something to the effect that we know we, we hope to talk to Phil and then time started getting away and Roger Malpe was looking through the score. The, I think the, the scoring was in the pro shop that year. He was looking through the window, and Amy Mickelson was with Phil, and Phil Phil's head was in his hands, and he was just crushed, devastated. And Raj goes, I really can't go in there. First of all, I can't go in there. Scoring. Second of all, yeah. Mickelson is really having a tough moment. But wouldn't you know it, right before we sign off the air, now we've got to get off the air. It's it's like a fire drill to get off the air because we've got network obligations that we've got to go to. Phil comes out, and he goes, all right, I'll talk now. And and Roger goes, ah, Phil, that's incredibly, you know, nice of you, but we're signing off right now, and we just don't have time to do it. So that was a moment where Phil collected himself. That could have been one of the all-time great interviews that never happened. But um, sure, I think you've got to be journalistically responsible, and I think you have to ask. But at the same time, if you've got uncontrollable raw emotion, that's getting in there maybe a little bit too too tight and close at times if somebody really is in an uncontrollable moment. Yeah. Yeah, no, I uh, I was in that spot. I mean, fortunately, I've had the chance to speak with him, and, and th- just fant- actually that episode is going to air the week after the U.S. Open, and he is he – is, outstanding and he's gonna have a great career but at that moment i just i was like nope that's <laughs> that's not the spot for me to ask you a question yeah uh, your instincts kind of take over don't they yeah it's kind of there's something there's the right thing to do and then there's not the right thing to well do. and also if you actually play the game yourself i mean you, i know you play and i know you're a single digit handicap and you're kind of like i know what that's like maybe not at that level but I, I know what that's not at that level, not but, that yeah, level can, but but you know what it's like. I mean, it's, anybody that's played the game of golf knows that you feel like crying and throwing your clubs into the lake, and yeah. everybody's had those moments, no doubt. Yeah. So this year uh, goes without saying has been a odd and uh, I mean fortuitous year as far as you getting to the U.S. Open, but but everything else kind of 
went to shit. Um, we could say that on this podcast, by the way. So, um, <laughs> okay, and, great. Yeah, just so you know. Um, yeah, I, I, I've I've skated past the FCC numerous times. No, I'm just kidding. So, um, so typically in a year, uh, NBC, you guys have your Florida swing, and you got the Honda Valspar, you know, Arnold Palmer players. That gets you prepped. You go to the U.S. Open, and then now you're going to the Open Championship, then FedEx and Ryder Cup. That was going to be your year. And you got a little bit of Florida, and then everything really just shut down. And then you don't have anything to do, I guess, golf-related until basically FedEx Cup, and now you have the U.S. Open. How has your maybe your preparation changed, and what have you done to get yourself prepped for Obviously, U.S. Open, FedEx Cup. I mean, how have you adjusted your year so that you're staying sharp and you're staying basically in close contact with all the the narratives that you need to be aware of? Yeah, the year changed uh, on a dime. You know, back we were at the Players' Championship and that Thursday first round happened and then boom, the lights went out on golf and and every other sport, really. So we were gearing up for, I was, you know, we were going to obviously do the rest of our our Florida swing and, and whatnot and and obviously did not have the U.S. Open at that time. So, so the big focus for me, big time, was the Olympics. And we were going to do the we were going to do the Olympic trials. You know, I do the swimming portion of the Olympics. We were all set to to do the Olympic trials at the end of June, and then go right to into Tokyo and get that done. And so that was a a real major loss. Obviously, it's it's hopefully, and I'm really positive that it is going to happen next year. So you're so. So in other words, you're, I was gearing up for those Olympics. I mean, we were, you know, I was watching, talking to people and, and, and getting all the research that we normally do that close to an Olympics happen and all of a sudden it's done. And so that preparation has been put on hold big time for now, all of these events that we got coming. And then the golf, they happened later in the summer, but for three months, we didn't know what was going to happen basically. And so I always keep track of golf. I, I'm just a big fan of it, even when I'm not working it. I, it's a year-round thing that kind of never stops. So I feel pretty comfortable about going into this U.S. Open, other than the, the, the heavy prep on who's in the field. There's a lot of, you know, that's obviously different. It's an all-exempt field, and there's no qualifying. Sure. So there are some people to get to know, but they're really, you know, a lot of times, you know, when you had these, you know, some golf professional from, who knows, Erie, Pennsylvania got in, you have no idea who he is. A lot of these guys are already qualified, so a lot of the names are familiar. So right. I think that has been a plus. The field is 12 fewer than it usually is because of the daylight that's available. They had to make it 144. So the U.S. Open, the FedEx Cup playoffs, everything else was pretty um, pretty manageable. And um, so I, I feel pretty comfortable about that. And then we'll just gear it up for the Olympics again probably you know at the at the start of next year when our golf portion is for the most part over with at least my responsible responsibility for golf is over so uh it hasn't changed too much there'll be some new players for the olympics next year but i'll i guess i'll worry about that when when i get there sure yeah no i uh i, I love i pulled up on youtube i love watching or, or just seeing some of the clips of you calling uh skiing or speed skating or or swimming because i mean I guess the general sports fan probably only pays attention to it during the Olympics, but it sure as hell sounds like a lot of fun. I mean, that sounds like a great gig that maybe most people would think, well, I don't know anything about swimming. Go listen to it and go watch it because you, you guys make it pretty damn exciting. I'm just telling you. 
Well, working with Rowdy Gaines and swimming. I mean, if you oh. can't get passionate and, and jacked up about swimming at the Olympics, working with that guy, I mean, he just I how mean, much coffee is that guy like, on? What's that? How much coffee is that guy on? <laughs> he needs to get on the decaf because he's plenty pumped up. Um, it's it's a pleasure to work with him. I've done every single Olympics with him since '96 in the swimming, and I did switch to alpine skiing in the, in the winter. Did speed skating for a while as well for the Winter Games. There's nothing like the Olympics. It is guaranteed drama going in. You know that there's going to be some things that you've never seen happen before. You're, uh, for the most part, introducing a lot of these athletes to America. So it's a fun storytelling mode for me to get into um, as far as, as my responsibilities go to make the people care about these athletes. And then something happens every single time that you never expect and you know that going in and that's the thrill of it this unscripted stuff that happens at the olympics and the energy and the electricity that sure. is going on there is, is tremendous so doing the olympics for as long as i've done them has been you know obviously one of the real highlights of of my career and it i just i, I can't imagine not doing them and i've been lucky enough to be at a place that is uh Held on to the uh, broadcasting rights for the Olympics as well as golf. Yeah, and and NBC obviously when when they lost the USGA briefly to Fox, uh, you you guys picked up the Open Championship, which now that's a new addition. I know that your first one was. I mean, gosh, your first one is at Troon with the the Mickelson and Stenson, um, uh, you know, duel, which could have couldn't have been any better. And then you've seen obviously Lowry and Molinari and and. And then obviously the the speed, speed, speed at Burkell uh, with a with a with a sand dune. Uh, I'm glad at thirteen. All right, all right. Now listen, Dan. Stop looking at my notes here. We're not in the same studio. How are you seeing this? So what's happening here? Um, all right. So I, I'm going to ask you about that, but I want to ask you also like you get to do now the U.S. Open. You've done many U.S. Opens. Now you've done a handful of Open Championships on your. I'm not going to ask you to choose your favorite, obviously, but on from where you're sitting. Is it is there a way for you to describe the subtle differences between them both? There is now. There didn't used to be because I'd never even been to an open, much less broadcast one. And right. I remember when we got the rights to it, yeah, after doing twenty US opens and then knowing that we were gonna do the open championship, I remember talking about all you know, talking with all the guys that had been there and broadcast it, like Mike Tarico and Terry Gannon and everybody else. They simply said, You are gonna fall in love with the open championship. And I said, yeah, you know, sounds good, looks good. And, but I didn't really know what to expect. I got over there to the aforementioned uh, Royal Troon, yeah. and we hadn't even started yet on the first round Thursday. I got, I got in, I took a red eye over, and went to the course on Sunday or Monday. And, and as the buildup happened, I told those guys, and I told myself, man, I get it now. This, it, it's such a special global feeling kind of event. And the courses that you're on are so old and so steeped in history and so interesting. The towns that they're in, the atmosphere that you're around, it just I just kind of let it all wash over me. And I just said, man, I get it. And that's before it even started. Right. And then we get to the Mickelson-Stenson duel, and it turns into one of the all-time great duels in the history of major championship golf. And it was just an unbelievable experience. And each and every one since then has has done the same thing. You know, I mean, Burkdale and Carnoustie and Royal Portrush was just amazing with Lowry winning. It's just so textured of an event. Different from the U.S. Open. That's our national championship. I'm an American. It's special. 
but the open is different and it's it's got that kind of uh texture to it that is unique now you couldn't possibly be expected to know how to call these major championships without playing the course yourself. So um, I mean, there's no way you could just you can't pull it up on you know some you know PGA Tour video game or something like that. You got to get out there and play the course. I'm sure you've had in your experience some time to sneak out and get nine holes in somewhere. Another impossible question, but why not? Uh, is is there one maybe? Um, like, what's a good foursome that you normally uh, put together when you're out there on site at a championship? Maybe one of your more memorable rounds while you're scouting out the, the golf course. Well, you're right. We have to experience it, right? We yeah, can't just yeah. get on the air and talk about it. You have to play it. Right. Even, a, uh, even, a, even a hack like me needs to get out there and play the tips, you know, on a U.S. Open course. And that was one of the great, great things we did in our 20 years previous to to play in the U.S. Opens or, or broadcasting the U.S. Opens, we would go out, and I swear I probably played every single course, maybe except one, and it was just unbelievable. I mean, people would ask me, you know, hey, what's a, what's a golf course like Oakland Hills or Shinnecock? What is it like during U.S. Open week versus the other week? And the one that probably most resembled the way the members play it was Oakmont. And I played that course. I mean, I don't know if you've played that, Ben, and if, if, if anybody has. It is the single most difficult place I have ever been to. And I played it like two weeks be- or a week before the U.S. Open actually started, and that's when the USGA said, hey, you guys got to cut the rough. And they, they made it easier for the, right. for the actual championship. So, yeah, we would get out there. I'd get out there with uh, Gary Koch. Tommy, Gary Koch, obviously, PGA Tour six-time winner. Um, Tommy Roy, our producer, who is a really good player. Uh, Tom Randolph, our co-producer, who has uh, played on the UCLA golf team, in in a, in a you know a mixed match of, of of other guys, which sometimes included Roger Malpe. He doesn't play as much as he as he does as he used to, but we would get we get out there and play. And uh, the USGA is, was nice enough to let us get out there the week of and just get a you know get a taste for what these things are like. I mean, Pebble Beach, my God, my gosh, it was just like you know. Like the memories are incredible. This time around, I don't really need to because I played the golf course all summer long, and have been a member at Wingfoot for I don't know ten years now. So I feel like I'm I'm ready to roll uh, at Wingfoot without having to play it. But I did play it just you know a couple weeks ago for the last time, uh, along with the rest of the members after they shut it down on on Labor Day. So for all the people that are going to be watching the U.S. Open, then then that are inevitably probably going to see these guys kind of get knocked around a little bit with the conditions, there that might be thinking to themselves, I could probably break ninety. Um, I I can you know I wouldn't shoot one forty like some people think. I I could I could post a decent. I could break a hundred. They just have no idea what they're they have no idea what they're talking about, do they? No, in fact, I don't know, you probably remember, and some of your listeners might, is that we used to have a Golf Digest Break 100 yep, um, deal you know, in conjunction with the U.S. Open. I think we, I, we did it for a number of years, and we'd bring in like a couple celebrities, whether it was Michael Jordan or Justin Timberlake, and we'd have somebody that was chosen that would write in a letter and say, why, you know, why do you deserve to get a chance to break 100? Why do you love you know, They would basically have to write an essay, and they would get chosen by some of our people in the golf digest editors and it, the whole thing was trying to break a hundred. And so you get them out there 
And I'm trying to remember if anybody ever did. I mean, most of them were out of it after a few holes. There was just no way. They, first of all, they were so nervous. The cameras were on them, and they were out on a U.S. Open course. It was such a level of setup that they weren't used to that, you know, even if they were able to get out there and, and you know, hit some balls and play a couple practice holes, I think, the day before, once once the gun went off and they were trying to break 100, and you've got to put the pencil on the scorecard, and, and there's no like, oh, that's good, you know, or take double there because, uh, you know, that's equitable scoring, you know, and all that. It, it's like the real deal, and it's like a shock, you know, to the system. And <laughs> I mean, yeah. it was unbelievable to watch these people try to wrestle these courses. And so anyway, I, yeah, I mean, I think that, um, if anybody has an opportunity to play it, it, it's not, you know, not, not everybody does, but if you ever do have an opportunity to play a course like that, it's an eye opener. It is, you got to have even more respect for what these guys are doing because you play your course. Let's say you belong to a U.S. open course and you play that course, but then you try, then you play it set up for the U S open totally different animal. I mean, greens firm rough is up fairways hopefully running fast and, and firm all of a sudden the thing is just jacked up to a point where you've just got no shot i feel the same way where i think that the usga and the setup is drastically different than what it is on a day-to-day basis so i'm glad you pointed that out that you're a mem- that you're a member there and that you've seen it in many different circumstances and what these guys are about to uh, you know try and tackle is I mean, gosh, you know, Hale Irwin plus seven. Uh, I think it was Ogilvy in 06 was plus six to win it. I mean, these are the best. Plus five, players. yeah. Plus five, yeah, and they're like the best players in the world, and they still – I mean, it, it kind of looks like it's going to be like that again. Um, before I get to Wingfoot more, don't let, I can't skip over the Ryder Cup. You know, it's arguably one of my favorite events. I think it is my favorite, truthfully. Um, well, Walker Cup is starting to become my favorite, I think, but – Ryder Cup is uh, just something that, obviously, uh, of any golf event, I'm guessing that's the one that you know you just can't have. With, you just can't have it unless there's fans there. I mean, it, there was no way we could do a Ryder Cup without fans at Whistling Straits, was there? No, no. And I think that the players let the PGA of America and everybody else know that in the early going yeah. because they knew – they didn't want this event to be tarnished. And I'm not saying that, you know, it was going to ruin the event for future years to come, right. but it was, it would be so different than the regular tour events with spectators and no spectators than a Ryder cup with no spectators. It absolutely is fueled by the fans. No one cares where that, where it's played. It could be played in a parking lot, a Muni, a nice club, doesn't matter. It's all about the fans and the reaction with what they're seeing. And if you're not going to get that fan reaction, the Ryder Cup is going to take on a whole different meaning. You know, what would happen to Patrick Reed shushing the crowd? What would happen to Ian Poulter chest bumping, you know, know, fist bumping his chest? It just... It's just so different, and so the right move was made. No way they could have done that, and I think you know, I think that in the end, they wanted so desperately to have it, but in the right, you know, in the end, the right decision was made. Yeah, which uh, which Ryder Cup maybe were you at that you were thinking to yourself, okay, we're we're not in a, it's not nasty. I mean, it obviously Kiowa kind of had that little bit of the war in the shore feel where it was a little bit testy there. I know you're there for that, and and there have been plenty other ones. Obviously the the comeback in Brookline, the comeback in Medina, but can can you remember back to a Ryder Cup where not just 
not the players so much, just the, the size and the scope of the fans and their enthusiasm where you were like, okay, we're, we're kind of at the limit now to where this can be contained. It's getting close to uh, over the top. Yeah. It's like, all right, it, it, it's good, but we're, we're really close to having it tip over the edge. Yeah. Um, I've done every Ryder cup since 93 oh. and that that was at the Belfry yeah. and that was fine. And, and I, and I think the one that really hit the edge, Oak Hill 95 was, was great. 97 Valderrama. Great. The one that comes to mind that kind of went to the edge. And then I think had the PG of America wondering, do we need to cut off alcohol cells or whatever <laughs> was 99 was Brookline. Okay. It was so intense. And obviously it matched the biggest, you know, final day comeback in Ryder cup history. That was the one, and those Boston fans—they're great, but yeah. they they can really kind of like to go over the edge once in a while. I remember playing an outing the next day after it was over, and you could still smell the champagne on the green, uh, oh. you know, on, the, on eighteen. It was, it was so unbelievable, such incredible theater. But I think that was the one where, okay, you know, we we you know we got on the edge here, but we don't want to ever get to a position where something really unfortunate happens. And obviously, that was a long time ago, and they went on and obviously played more and more Ryder Cups. But the one that uh, I think got them pretty concerned is the upcoming one at uh, Beth Page, you know, back yeah. in <laughs> back in New York. And I think that is going to be uh, an interesting. And I know they're thinking about you know alcohol sales and all that, but. Uh, you know, that we'll see, but I, I think the PGA of America is all over it. I think that, uh, they're not going to do anything that would, uh, endanger anyone or take away from the fanfare of the event and the fans having a good time. And cause that's what it is all about. Like we just talked about, but, uh, 99 Ryder cup was, uh, <laughs> one of those events where oftentimes during the telecast, it was such compelling theater on that Sunday that I remember, um, I was working with Bernard Gallagher yeah. in the, uh, in our, in my tower. And I remember telling myself and him, Hey, let's take a deep breath because what we're seeing here is, uh, is pretty, pretty historic. So in the end it was, Oh yeah. Yeah. That time, obviously it was really the last time a lot of us were able to see Payne Stewart. Um, you know, he won the 99 us open. Then, you know, this is basically the 20th anniversary of, uh, of your start in, uh, with, with the U S open being in the tower with Tony Miller and, you know, you replaced, uh, you replaced Dick Enberg. I mean, I, I remember, I mean, I'm in my mid forties, so I remember a lot of calls of, of Dick Enberg's. I mean, he, he made the call on Payne Stewart's putt and this guy kind of like you covered, I mean, just covered everything, golf, tennis, football, Olympics, and just, you know, one of the greats. Can you share one thing that you've learned from Dick Enberg that still stuck with you 20 years later? Absolutely. First of all, love the guy, miss the guy. Yeah. And, you know, when I got to NBC Sports, the stable of announcers was legendary. I mean, it was Dick Enberg, Tom Hammond, Marv Albert, Bob Costas. And I'm thinking, what am I doing here? So, when, <laughs> hey, when now, I you get know, there, now you know how I feel talking to you. So, this is perfect. <laughs> yeah, right. So, I get there in 92. And I'd never done any play-by-play, but I knew I wanted to do it. And NBC was nice enough to to hire me anyway, thinking I, you know, I I would be fine with that, even though they needed more studio people at the time. But they hired me, and I got thrown into the uh, fire to learn play-by-play, kind of on the run. And luckily, we had the entire AFC NFL package at the time, so 
before I did my first few games of that season, they wanted to send me out and observe a couple of their top teams, which included Dick Enberg, who at the time was working with Bob Trumpy. So I'll never forget. I, I, I just told myself, I can't believe I'm going to meet this legend and get a chance to hang out in the booth with him and ask him questions about how he gets it done. But he could not have been nicer. I get there and he just invites me in so welcome and funny and charismatic and I'm sitting there in the booth with him, and after it's all over, the weekend's over, and I've sat in the booth with him, watched him work. He gives me his number, and he says, you know, you know, take a picture of my depth chart here. This is, you know, just in case you have any questions, here's my number. Call me oh. if you need anything. And it was just like I'll never forget it. And I've always tried in my career as it's gone on to remember that and to just kind of, you know, you're stepping up the ladder, reach down the ladder and pull somebody else up and give them a little bit of a help, you know, like, like Dick gave me. And one of the things he, one of the, one of the greatest pieces of advice he ever gave me was be prepared, be prepared for anything, do your preparation, know the players, know the stories, you know, cold, be ready to, to celebrate them and tell them. But he says, you've got to let the game come to you. You've got to let the event come to you. Don't be so, don't be so, um, quick to just unload all of the information you have. And it's easy to try to do that when you, when you prep so much. And I still find myself guilty of that sometimes like, Oh God, back off on that. Let the action take priority. And I always can kind of hear his voice speaking to me to tell me that, you know, just to say, let the game happen. That's, you know, that takes ultimate priority and then if you get into a blowout, if you get into a game that needs some help, then you can start, you know, sharing some of that other information that, that might, you know, need to be, need to be woven into the story. But he was a, he was a fantastic guy, a legend in the business and, and even a better person. And I'll never forget him. Yeah. Well, that's a great story. Yeah. He, gosh, I can still in my head can just hear him over and over calling that putt that Payne Stewart, Stewart won. So, uh, you know, Ben, I was, I was on that. That was my last, uh, my last year on the ground. I would do, I would have the privilege of doing the interview at the U S open on the green after it happened. That was the last time I got to do it. Cause I took over for Dick the next year in 2000 when tiger did his 15 shot romp. But I was, I was on that green when Payne Stewart sank that putt. And to this day, that's the greatest, you know, in-person golf moment that I can ever remember. Wow. The energy on that green as I walked over to get set up for the presentation, I was 10 feet away or less than that from Tracy Stewart and Payne embracing and hugging and the tears rolling down their cheeks. Yep. And he and I, I could hear him say, I, I did what you told me to, lovey, that's what he called her. Yep. I did what you told me to, I kept my head yep. down what she told him to do while he was putting and he, and he just sank a putt to win the U S open. And he had just come close the year before at Olympic club. And it was all these stories kind of colliding. And I just remember being on that green with all that energy. And the first question I asked Payne Stewart as we came live back on the air was, Hey, something to the effect of, you know, guys dream about having a putt to win the U S open. You just made it. And he just had a whoop holler come out of him. And it was just, just incredibly, uh, it was just unforgettable. Yeah. And, uh, that, that, that moment, Payne Stewart remains just one of my all time great, great moments in this business. Did you, uh, so you're talking about like, you know, keeping it, keeping a couple things back, don't unload all of your notes. So, uh, you know, let the, let the story, let the game come to you. So I, I'm guessing it's harder for you during a blowout to fill time strategically 
than it is when you have like seven guys tied for the lead and they're all just we're going back and forth cutting to this camera that camera maybe i'm wrong but what's what's more difficult for you trying to balance no doubt you're absolutely right it's it's a lot easier when you've got great drama okay and you have you don't need to say as much you don't need to get involved as much you let the pictures and a great director uh, like we like we have and just let them take the pictures let the drama and the less you say in our, you know, our, a good producer in this case, Tommy Roy reminds us of it all, all the time. The less you say, the more tense the moment becomes. And we have a saying where we say, let's listen. And Tommy will get in our ears and he'll push the all button. So all the announcers can hear it. Let's listen. And nice. everybody lays out. And we've done that numerous times. Hopefully um, most of the time we've done a pretty good job with it. But uh, it's, there's no doubt about it. You're not hearing something. You're not you're he hearing announcers chirp. I mean, what can we possibly say at that moment when Tiger's over a putt, you know, maybe a Torrey Pines to get into a playoff with Rocco, for example, or on and on and on. You just melt that moment. The less you say, the better it is. Is it harder for you guys to lay out with no spectators? You know, it's been interesting. I always kind of wondered how that dynamic was going to work. And it is a little bit harder because you feel like maybe the telecast needs a little bit more of a right. boost or a little bit more of an enhancer energy, but you know, however you want to put it. And then, so you've got that challenge. And I found myself sometimes talking a little more and I think the rest of our crew doing the same, but what's even trickier is when a big moment happens. And it, so for instance, John Rahm right. makes this 66 foot bomb at Olympia fields and Zinger and I kind of came out of our seats and, you know, I think I used and Zinger did as well, showed just as much energy there as we would have had there been 30,000 fans around the green. And I thought, oh, geez, when I listen to this back, it's going to sound kind of manufactured and maybe not match up with the atmosphere. But it was okay because there was a few people that were there, like the 30, 40 people that were there, volunteers or whatever, kind of got excited about it. And it kind of worked, but I was – that's one of the things that I was a little bit apprehensive about. How's that all going to work? And we're still kind of feeling our way through that. Yeah, I, you know, I'm watching PGA Tour events on TV, and at first I was, you know, like the first couple on CBS. I think it was uh, like Colonial and and a couple of the other events. But I just was like, all right, this is kind of weird. But then slowly but surely, I'm like, you know, I'm not hearing mashed potatoes. I'm not hearing all this crap. I I get to see the guys when they miss right. In the rough, it's not trampled down rough. If they go over the green, it's not ricocheting off of a grandstand. I mean, right. I, I almost feel like I'm I have subscribed to some sort of a an on demand uh, access to or some VIP access to a to a tournament that no one else has access to, and, and I have the exact same ability to watch it as anyone else. So I kind of feel like I'm not missing out a whole lot. I'm sure it's a lot different for you, but. Um, yeah, it's it's. I think the U.S. Open is going to be fascinating without it. So I don't I don't know how that's going to work, but um, I don't know. Yeah, we'll see. You yeah. know, the PGA was interesting. It had an incredible leaderboard, tight sure. leaderboard down the stretch, and Colin Morikawa did what he did, and that worked. I you know there weren't any fans, and I kept telling myself, boy, this would have it, it would have been a lot better and incredibly even more powerful had there been fans down that stretch in the back nine sure. at Harding Park. So saying that, I don't think we're ever, you know, we're always going to miss these fans who just give this, you know, everything we do so much more energy. 
but at least we're playing golf, right? Yeah, I mean, gosh, we're playing majors. You know, we're going to have a Masters in the middle of November, which is going to be another one of those events that has just been pulled along by incredible, you know, echoing reverberations yeah. through the pines of Georgia and all that. That'll be really interesting. That, so that we're just kind of feeling our way through it all. Those guys on, a, on Magnolia Lane are, are piping in uh, uh, speaker systems in the trees, or they're doing something. I know they're up to something. So, um, so I had Joe Buck on the podcast a couple years ago, and we talked about his his run with Chambers Bay and Oakmont, and you know the DJ ruling debacle. And I've actually had a lot of people say, "Oh, I'm, you know, I'm so glad it's back on NBC." And I I didn't really like how Fox did it. And I've kind of talked and turned them around a little bit. I'm like you do understand that they had no experience, really, no continuity of how to do a major championship. This wasn't a Corn Ferry Tour event. This was the U.S. Open with all eyes, and they get dealt Chambers Bay, the, as I said, the, the Oakmont with the DJ ruling, Aaron Hills, which was kind of a blank canvas, so to speak. I know you were watching those U.S. Opens, not from the, not from the vantage point that you wanted to, but when you were watching those, were you thinking – God, I'm glad I'm not there for that mess. Or were you thinking, man, I wish I was there because it's just, it's so unique. I mean, what were your thoughts in those times when you were away from the U S open? Yeah, I, I think the, the script and the situation that Fox was given was just about impossible at the yeah. beginning. Not only are they starting from scratch and they have no kind of regular golf programming to kind of get warmed up and, Oh, by the way, we're going to come out of the gates and do a U.S. open. And you're going to do a U.S. Open at Chambers Bay. I remember we did the U.S. Amateur at Chambers Bay years before yeah, that 2015 Open. And I'm, I'll be honest, I, I don't care for the golf course. I, I, I think that uh, there's a lot of, you know, and I don't, we don't need to get into the specifics, but I just don't really, I, and I used to ask the guys that were with us at the time, Roger Malpe, Gary Koch, and the rest of the guys, I go, can you, can you guys see a U.S. Open being held here? Because at the time it was already announced it was happening. And um, they just said no. And we just thought, well, maybe this place is going to warm up to us. We, we were there a week, and it never did. So that was an incredibly tough call for, for Fox to have out of the gates, you know, to, to not have a, an Oakmont, which they had the second year, and, you know, Shinnecock, which they later had, and Pebble Beach, which they went out with flying colors yeah, you know, that last was, year. I that thought was, they did an incredible yeah. job. So not only were they dealing with that, Ben, they, they had Mark Loomis, who's a good friend of mine, the producer over there at Fox, had the unenviable task of trying to recruit a team from scratch when already there were full golf teams at CBS and our place, NBC Golf Channel, that he couldn't really pluck from. So he had to kind of come up with all these guys that was tough. They had to kind of mesh together. Golf, unlike any other sport, I think, you know, requires repeatability and a team that's with each other, whether it's in the truck, the announcers, the whole nine yards. So he had this incredible challenge. And, you know, Joe at the, you know, Joe, you know, at the, at the helm of it all, trying to, you know, get everybody involved and get it all, you know, down the road in the right way. It, it, that was almost, almost unfair, I guess I should say. Yeah, no, I, I kind of agree. That, I, that tough, that tough of a challenge. But I'll tell you what, you know, Pebble Beach, and I told Joe this and Lumi this, uh, that was their finest hour. They, they did an incredible job. That open was phenomenal. And they were, they were really making progress. And, you know, I think they they received a lot of unfair criticism at times, and and that that just goes 
that kind of comes with the territory when, you know, we did it for 20 years. People get used to our music and they get used to the voices. And, oh, you know, we don't want these guys that I've never heard. But uh, I think they evolved into doing a really, really top-notch job. And, and you know, just because of the circumstances, uh, we happen to get it back. But I really do feel for those guys. Mark Loomis, lifelong family know, member of Wingfoot. You know the story. His kid won the junior club championship there uh, last year. Mark won it when he was a junior. I mean, the guy has lived and breathed the course, and boom, it has a U.S. Open. Oh, by the way, it's going to happen in September. Okay, well, that's a drag. We'll do it in September. Oh, by the way, you're not doing that one, and you're not you're not doing it. You're not doing the rest of the package. Can you imagine the hit that, that he took and the rest of those guys took? Brad Fax and Shane Bacon, I know all those guys, and uh, – there's a there's another side of this business, and I'm I'm really sensitive to uh, to, to how all this happened, no doubt. Yeah. Well, you are going to be in the chair there at Wingfoot, and as we said earlier, you know you have a lot of history there, a lot of carnage. There's the massacre in '74, and there's Ogilvy, and you know I know Fuzzy won in '84 over Norman. He he got it under par, but that was probably in reaction to what they did to the place in '74. But um, you know these guys are you know. Well, not the amateurs, but these guys are gonna they're gonna make some money this week. They'll make the cut. They'll be fine. Is there anything wrong with me wanting and rooting for them to get kind of the crap kicked out of them a little bit? I mean, I, I mean, is am I a bad person, Dan? I mean, I, I want to see these guys. You know, I want to see them sweat. I want to see them just trying like hell to make a par and get in the house. I want to see seven players tied at six over on the back nine on Sunday. Am I a bad person? No, you're not. And you can look yourself in the mirror the next day by having that attitude. Okay, you're, good. You're going to be, you're, you're fine. I, I think that, um, I think that's what makes golf and golf tournaments and championships uh, good is that they're different. And I think the U S open, um, I'm kind of old school in that way. They, I, I think it kind of lost its way for a little bit in some of the setups because I think that you have to kind of say, who are we? You know, what do we stand for? And I do believe that people love seeing a lot of birdies at times. They love seeing an eagle possibility at the last hole to win it. They love seeing those, you know, guys light up a board. I mean, I, there was a, you know, there was a certain amount of entertainment value in Dustin Johnson going 30 under, um, <laughs> you know, in TPC Boston. But I'm, I'm more in your school of at a U.S. Open and at Wingfoot, these guys need to be challenged. Yeah. You, there needs to be a premium on hitting the ball in the fairway. And that is the big deal at Wingfoot. You cannot live out of that rough, even though Mickelson had two fairways, uh, uh, you know, back in the, you know, and then I, mean, I know I'm always going to get that argument, but there's no way he'll ever get in that position again. I mean, that, that's just a total aberration. That was testament to his incredible short game that that day, but I I just think there's no way somebody's going to be able to bomb and gouge it. Now it's easy sometimes to sit here, you know, prior to the championship and say, oh well, Bryson DeChambeau, he's not going to win because he's just going to bomb it out there and try to take his chances. I do think that Wingfoot is just a different animal in that regard. Um, you know, even even more so than than we saw at Olympia Fields, which kind of gave the guys a little entree into a U.S. Open track just a couple of, you know, a few weeks removed from the real deal at Wingfoot. 
So yeah, I I think it's I think I think the fans like seeing it too. I think they love seeing these guys struggle. They they love seeing these guys kind of become more human, and not just uh, you know go out and shoot twenty seven and have a fifty nine watch you know every other day. Right. Um, I I like it. I think it's a it's a nice departure, and you know I think it's an even better feeling for the champion when he lifts that trophy at the end of the week and says, you know what, I survived. Yeah. And I'm. I think it also brings into, I think it does bring into play the psyche of a player that's able to handle it. I think there's a lot of bombers out there and long hitters that might be able to win week to week in the PGA Tour, but have no chance at a U.S. Open. And I like that dynamic of having to like take a double bogey and move on and stomach it and and still get it done. So yeah. I'm in your court. Okay, love it. As long as I'm on, as long as we're on the same page, and then I've I've achieved my goal in this in this conversation. So. <laughs> We're, um, you mentioned Dustin Johnson. So, um, you did actually a little golf.com interview throughout literally almost three years ago where you were basically saying, you know, of all the guys at the top, whether it's Spieth, Rory, Tiger, you know, you felt that DJ had pretty much the biggest arsenal of weapons and seems like that's still the case. He is uh, 66 under par in his last four tournaments. That's two wins and two runners up. So he has to be the clear favorite. I'm assuming going into Wingfoot, would you? Uh, is that pretty much a safe bet? Would you say? Yeah, you know that's the on paper stuff. Right. You're exactly right. I I just think that it's funny because when I was at um, when I was at uh, our last event to our championship, I was talking to DJ and he he's never seen Wingfoot. And in fact, he was scheduled to come out and see it before, you know, before the U.S. Open got underway and, and had some weather problems and he wasn't able to see it. So he's going to be seeing it U.S. Open week for the very first time. And I think, obviously, with the arsenal of game that he's got going right now, he would be the favorite. Absolutely. The um, way he's got control of that teal left to right drive, yep. that's going to serve him well at wing foot. Got to keep it in the fairway. I think that he's he's accurate enough he, he's proven that in this incredible stretch run but the greens are different they are a different animal it's uh you know he wanted oakmont though you know yeah. i mean my gosh those greens are are wild and i think there's three guys there's three greens complexes in america that set themselves apart oakmont augusta national and wingfoot so yeah i that's a long-winded way of saying that absolutely dj can can win and he's absolutely i think the favorite going in it's just a matter of is he gonna is he gonna hit enough fairways? Because uh, I think the premium on hitting fairways at Wingfoot is going to be the deciding factor. How many times you know I'm, I'm thinking about Dustin? I'm thinking about you know Spieth, obviously, and Tiger and Ricky Rory and all the, all the big names and all the favorites. You know, you're a sports fan just like I am, and you know you find yourself you root for the favorites but then there's also the bob mays and the rich beams and the rocco mediates out there how hard is it for you to you know i'm obviously you got to keep it professional while you're on the air and be impartial and just let the story come to you and share it with the viewer but how many times do you catch yourself saying gosh i really would like to see this guy win or uh you know i'm kind of i mean does that ever enter your head when you're when you're calling it or do you or do you just turn the switch off are you kidding me? Absolutely. Okay. Uh, Give me an example. You know, Give me an example. You know, I wouldn't say it on the air, Ben. Of course I mean, not. I wouldn't, no, no, I I wouldn't say, boy, I hope that uh, <laughs> Phil Mickelson and Tiger Woods are battling down the stretch on Sunday at this U.S. Open at Wingfoot. Wouldn't that be great? Right. I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't say that, but you're darn right. We're all hoping for the best show. 
And, uh, you know, and, and those best shows and entertaining shows can come in a lot of different ways. Yeah, it can be, I think the most, I think the most gripping story obviously would be Phil Mickelson getting in the hunt at the U S open at Wingfoot at the age of 50 after it was the biggest train wreck of his career coming down and all of his six runner ups. Yeah. That would be choice number one, but there, that doesn't mean there are, are not other choices. Um, there's nothing like a like a Bob May type going yeah. up against uh, you know a Tiger Woods. That that's that's great stuff. There's also you know you know our business the great scripts come in all ways, shapes and forms. I mean sometimes the greatest thing is to have a villain in there against the good guy or the favorite or the you know the guy that everybody's pulling for. So you've got all these different scenarios, and it's that's what's great about what we do is we don't know what it's going to be. I'm hoping it's a good combination of, you know, somewhat of what we've, what I've just described because, but just when you think they're, they're, you know, you've seen it all, you see something, you know, remember Kenneth Ferry, the guy that played in the final group with oh, Bill yeah. Mickelson in 2006. I mean, you know, where is he now? You know, I mean, he's kind of left, uh, left stage left. And so, you know, he had the Superman belt buckle on. No one knew who he was, but it was a great story that week. Yeah. And it was, it was neat to see if he was going to be able to pull it off on Sunday. He didn't, but who knows if we're going to see another guy like that. And I certainly root on a story like that as well. Well, let's get you out of here with just a couple more fun ones here. So you're, you're at these incredible championships. And when, when the tie gets loosened, when you're at a PJ tour event or major and you're, you're, you're done for the day, who is the best hang? Who's got the best stories? Who is always good for a fun conversation where you know you should probably call it a night, but damn it, the stories are too good. Let's get another round of beers and keep it going. Well, you know, I I, I, I don't think I could I could I could tell you anybody but my, my man Roger Malpe. Yeah. I uh, knew you were going with Malpe because I'm just know, thinking to myself, like, I, uh, there's no way. Um, on this on this NBC golf road, which I've been on now for, you know, since ninety two. I've had more dinners with Raj than anybody else by far. And that doesn't mean there's a, there's other characters mixed into the mix. David Faraday, Jimmy Roberts, who's a great dinner companion as well. I like guys that, um, you know, after air, we can kind of, you know, exhale and, you know, like you said, have a drink, have a glass of wine, have, as Raj would put it, have a little cow in red. And he's, he's into that. And so he's the guy, he's got a million stories. And here's the deal. I've heard most of them 30, 40 times, uh-huh. but every time he starts to tell him, I'm like, oh, geez, there we go again. It might be somebody else at the dinner table or, or a bartender that, right. that, that, that wants to hear it. And I'm like, oh, geez, again. And then as he, as he starts telling it, I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm just reeled in again. You're he tells him again. so he tells him, we're laughing again, we're roaring. And so he's the guy that, you know, that I've had more dinners with and shared more dinners with anybody. We're on the same, you know, kind of let's get there, you know, right after air and, you know, let's have a couple drinks and then get out of there and get home. And he didn't always used to do that. He used to run a little harder when he was playing, actually, which uh, is pretty yeah. funny. But those are the stories that, that he tells. And those are the, the funniest stories. And then when David Faraday gets in there oh, good Lord. and the dynamic between Faraday and Raj is pretty hilarious. And that's when I just kind of sit back and, uh, and just you, enjoy lay, the show. You, you lay out is what you're saying. <laughs> I lay out. Exactly. I know, I know when to hit the mute button and that's one of them. Oh my gosh. I can just imagine an evening with Maltby and Faraday. Oh, God. <laughs> um, the best stuff happens in the commercials, by the way, Faraday is hilarious. Obviously everybody that 
listen to him knows that. But our our commercials are uh, when we can talk with one another uh-huh. are are is classic stuff. If that somehow was televised or could be televised, I, it might be a higher rating than the actual golf show. Well, I still think like I'm not sure if you remember this, but you obviously you know who Joel Damon is. Um, I think he missed, sure. he missed the cut in Boston, I believe, and he went on to Twitter and said, "Hey, I think it's I think it was Boston, but he missed the cut." Yeah, it was Boston because they played Thorny Lee the next day. Him and I believe it's, uh, oh, Nick something. I can't remember who it was. Nick. Anyway, so so he misses the cut in Boston, and he's like, hey, I'm in town. Uh, he threw it up on Twitter. Let's get a money game going. And him and this and, and one other pro met with two guys at Thorny Lee, which is the home club of, you know, Matt Parziali and Shannon Johnson, both USGA Mid-Am champs. And it blew up on Twitter, and people were following it. They had like thirty people following with the club. I think you're going to see a lot more things like that. I think you're going to see that. I think you're going to see things like, uh, you know, maybe a, a Dan Hicks or a Roger Malby just, you know, doing some sort of a stream, um, uh, you know, alternative broadcast to an event. I I don't think you're wrong. There's going to be alternative. Um, there's going to be alternatives to the typical broadcast, and it, who knows when it's going to happen. But I definitely think it's going to happen. No doubt. I mean, there's all sorts of possibilities out there with uh, what you can do with technology and the oh, social yeah. media. Sometimes, you know, the, you know, I'll, I'll leave you with. I think it it is a. It, there's so many positives in that regard. The negatives have been that I think we announcers, and I think I speak for us as a group, versus the days of Dick Enberg and Vince Scully and those guys. I, I think that we we all kind of walk on eggshells a little more because we're. You know, every, there's a lot more sensitivity oh, yeah. out there in many, many ways all the way around that, you know, you just can't get away with anything that's inappropriate. Not that we should get away with anything that's inappropriate, oh, but course. I think that's, that's just, there's just a bigger sensitivity factor out there that uh, the announcers of yesteryear, and, and, and I'm getting up there as well, but those those guys, I mean, I think just, you know, that those were the, the golden, golden days. But I, I get what you're saying about technology, and I think that should be taken advantage of fully. Yeah, well, I really appreciate the time. I know it was a, uh, I know you got, uh, it's been a crazy year for you, but you're entering into the uh, home stretch, so to speak, and you have a lot of great things to look forward to with uh, with the U.S. Open and beyond. So we'll definitely be listening, we'll definitely be watching, and uh, I really appreciate you stopping by the back of the range, Dan. Hope I was decent enough to get an invite back, Ben. Appreciate it, pal. And there you have it. Special thanks to Dan Hicks for joining me on this episode. Of course, I'm going to invite him back. I think we need to do that every single year. He's the perfect guest to kick off U.S. Open Week. Don't forget, follow along on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Every episode is available at thebackoftherange.com. Much more content for me during U.S. Open Week. And also, in a couple days, Butch Harmon will be my next guest here at the Back of the Range.